John Comlos coming to speak at UBBO. He came many, many years ago, a decade or more ago, I believe. He's Professor Emeritus of Economic History at the University of Munich, and he has PhDs in both history and economics from the University of Chicago, where he came into contact with and got to know Nobel Prize-winning economic historian Robert Fogel, who introduced him to the field of anthropometric history in 1982. The rest, as they say, is history, because he devoted his academic career in developing and expanding this research agenda, which led to him founding the field of economics and human biology with a journal of the same name in 2003. He's defied disciplinary boundaries, economics, yes, but also history, also biology, also mathematics. And uh, he's a, a provocative man um, saying provocative things at the time when they need to be said. John, the floor is yours. <laughs> Thank you, Stanley. It's great to see you again and nice to be here. I'm going to talk about uh, economics to a large extent uh, because I think we need a new ways of looking at the economy in order to solve many, many of our problems and obesity epidemic being one of them. And my belief is that mainstream economists made the uh, mistakes of historical proportions. And that's what I'm going to be talking about, basically. Uh, blackboard economists, and I call them blackboard economists because their equations work very well on the blackboard, but not in the real world. And um, they are not able to account for the major developments of our time. They pretty much struck out. And I start with Reaganomics, uh, who, uh, like Thatcher, uh, really embarked on a new economic agenda, which we call neoliberalism. And blackboard economists supported Reagan as, and Thatcher, which meant the small government, low taxes, trickle-down economics, uh, deregulation, of the economy and all of these turned out to be toxic. The uh, slogan at the time was to starve the beast, which is a very nasty way of uh, referring to the government. And it didn't turn out very well because it uh, magnified the inequalities that already existed in 1980, created an oligarchy because almost all of the benefits of economic growth accrued to the top 1%. And that is to be taken literally is the top 1%. It's not the top 5%. It's not the top 10%. This is a little bit complicated uh, tax information table, but I'd like you to look at the bottom of the uh, income distribution, which is uh, $9,000 $9, here. They received a $400 benefit by 1985. Uh, that's in 2017 money. But look at what happened to the top. Uh, the millionaires received a windfall of almost $400,000. Uh, that was a game changer because obviously $400, you're not going to do a lot with, but with $400,000 by 1985 meant that 
these folks could reinvest that money into the political process, gain a lot of political favors, deregulate the economy, and make the economy work even uh, more for them. So that was the game changer. Here's the Gini coefficient. Gini index, as you can see, in 1981, there's a kink here, which means that inequality really uh, turned on a uh, dime. The idea was that sometimes the uh, the money is going to trickle down to the poor, but it really didn't trickle. People, uh, people in the lower middle class, uh, you see there are no gains here. $31,000 in 1979, $31,000 in 2011, no gains at all. Whereas the top 1% gained $600,000 per annum by 2011. Okay, so that changes the whole, whole ball game, you might say. And then uh, blackboard economists were great supporters of globalization. You know, they claimed that Americans would benefit from it, but, um, but the benefit, uh, again, didn't trickle down. It had a few winners and many losers, and these losers were not happy. Many of them were so discouraged that they took their lives. They uh, called that the debts of despair, and that uh, there's a book that came out with that title not too long ago. And the uh, hyper-globalization really destroyed the American heartland. The Rust Belt was created. You can see drug and alcohol poisoning here. In 2001, when China joined the uh, World Health Organization, there's another kink in this graph, uh, meaning that the rate of suicides, deaths of despair increased. Very important for us to consider. Deregulation was supposed to be good for the economy, make things more efficient and so forth. Instead, it led to the financial crisis. In other words, the economists didn't know what was going on. It's as simple as that. Van Bernanke spoke of the great moderation, just as the uh, crisis of 2008 was around the corner. Ridiculous. Housing prices were going up like crazy. You know, it wouldn't have taken a PhD to figure out that uh, bubble was on its way, especially since real median household income was not increasing at all. You can see here in end of the 20th century, there's some ups and downs, but this, this is not a, an economy that should uh, lead to an increase in housing prices, but Van Bernanke was not smart enough to figure that out. And then, of course, we had a genius president, you know, who said uh, that this is the greatest economy ever on, on earth, but actually the economy was not in good shape, not only because of 150,000 people who killed themselves, but because the unemployment rate is mismeasured. It's usually half of the true unemployment rate. And among African-Americans, uh, you know, it was 15 percent in, uh, in uh, November of, of 2016. And even among whites, it was 7 uh, percent. So it's about twice of what they claim it is. Among blacks, uh, the 
those without a high school diploma, the unemployment rate is uh, 32%. Now you know why so many people get killed by the police uh, because they're getting problems with the law. A lot of people in prisons, in some states, uh, income is, is down even in 2019. It hasn't recovered yet, you know? So it's a devastation in the Rust Belt in states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, 2019 by 2019, you get a little bit of uptake in uh, practically 20 years. Ridiculous. Well, 21st century has not been very good economically. Economic growth has been down. So this is not a roaring economy that, that they claimed it was. And uh, if you look at non-college graduate uh, men, their wages, uh, even in 2018, excuse me, is back to where it was uh, in the late uh, 1970s. Okay, so now you know why so many of them are uh, climbing up the uh, walls of the Congress. This is not an economy that's working for them. This is not a political system that is working on their behalf. And here's uh, those who are without a high school um, education, high school diploma, and you see their wages are still below what it was in the 1970s. Uh, this, if this is a roaring economy, um, you know, and there are a lot of other uh, signs of uh, discontent, namely, about half of the population has been thriving all along. Okay, this is a $20 trillion economy that works for half the population. The rest are either struggling or suffering and mostly struggling to keep head above water. And of course, when the COVID hits, it hits an economy that's uh, totally off balance to begin with. That's why the devastation is so strong. So then, then came the financial crisis. So we're talking about Reaganomics. We're talking about tax cuts. We're talking about deregulation. All wrong, wrong, wrong. Okay, and then comes the uh, financial crisis. And uh, of course, they didn't bail out the homeowners. They let the homeowners fall. They bailed out the CEOs. The, what did that mean? That, mean? that meant that none of them came down to a middle-class level. None of them sunk to the middle class. They all remained in the 1%. So the, um, uh, they bailed out the CEOs and they all remained uh, millionaires. So that, that didn't work. That created a lot of backlash, uh, feeling of injustice, okay? Blackboard economists uh, were not very... Um, you know, we're not very good at saying, well, the growth would solve it. We would grow. Uh, but instead, we accumulate a lot of debt. The government uh, went from uh, Reagan's 30 percent of GDP to uh, about 120, 105 percent here. But during COVID, it shot up to 130 percent of GDP. OK, so growth really didn't do a lot of um, a lot of good in that direction either. And what we've morphed into is a kind of bailout capitalism where we 
rely on money creation in order to bail out the system. Here are the assets that the uh, Federal Reserve buys. And as you can see, it went from under $1 trillion at the beginning of the financial crisis, shoots up almost immediately, then comes more money creation, more money creation. And now we're in excess of $7 trillion. Good luck with that. So basically, I'm arguing that the economy generated a lot of despair, a lot of problems, and ended up in the revolt of, revolt of the deplorables and um, the election of Donald Trump, which was a real revolution because it was anti-elite. It was uh, basically trying to throw the elites out of power. The elites were the ones who created this mess, right? So we shouldn't be surprised at the revolution because people had enough of uh, what I call an Alice in Wonderland economy. Okay, but the problem was that the markets are not made in heaven. They're not what uh, the economists uh, claim them to be. They generally skew the benefits toward those who are already privileged. Let's face up to that. So it magnified the privileges of the elite. What was the problem? Well, it's an axiomatic um, theory that is deductive. It starts with assumptions, and these assumptions are wrong, so you, you shouldn't expect a good uh, economic system to come out of them. Okay, and then when there are contradictions, they they're disregard the contradictions. It's very simple. So there's a problem. I call these problems Achilles heels or curses that uh, makes uh, that differentiates real markets from theoretical markets, and these make uh, real markets inefficient without adequate government oversight. That's what blackboard economists forgot. Well, one uh, important one, also from the point of view of uh, human flourishing and uh, of the obesity epidemic and so forth, that people are not rational. So the assumption by mainstream economists that people are rational is a non-starter that makes them uh, pre-Freudian. Uh, Daniel Kahneman uh, received a Nobel Prize uh, showing that rationality is impossible for finite minds like ours. In fact, four economists have received Nobel Prizes to show that people were, were not uh, rational, but and there is a field called behavioral economics, which is built on these ideas, but it hasn't really made a sufficient impact in the main on the mainstream. And then, of course, uh, comes Ivan Pavlov, which is very important because uh, classical conditioning is an important aspect of uh, the human brain, mind, psyche. And economists completely disregarded this. Disregarded this becomes very important, of course, from the point of view of uh, the obesity epidemic. 
economists pretend that we're uh, we have super minds, but and know everything about the economy, and we're rational, and of course we can maximize our utility function or maximize profits. It's not a problem. Okay, all of this is 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 not a problem in mainstream, but they forget that we do not enter the market as adults. It's a big mistake. Because we we entered the most mostly entered the market as children, right? And we're already consumers as toddlers. We impress our parents to buy things for us, and even more importantly, our mind is conditioned on the the way the super corporations would like uh, our mind to develop. So the mainstream says that we have consumer sovereignty, that we know what we want, right? We know what we want. So producers are going to produce what we want, right? And they're going to produce the output and then we're going to get consumption out of it. And that's all fine and good. Well, that's the conventional view of adult economists. There are no children in here. And we say in this case, test. Tastes are exogenous. But what happens in reality is that the producers spend a heck of a lot of money to condition us from the very beginning of our lives to want that which they want to sell so that they are in charge essentially and we get into a rat race economy. That also means that tastes are endogenous to the system. Our character is endogenous to the system. Our mind is endogenous to the system. Very important to realization. So the, ex- uh, the assumption by mainstream economists that tastes are exogenous is toxic. Well, because advertising appeals to our unconscious mind, okay, and our tastes are influenced by the centers of power, as we know. So our tastes are formed within the economic system. And very difficult to escape from that. And children internalize the social norms and so forth. Well, this is neglected, basically. And another thing that is exempted is power, the distribution of power. Because once you get concentration of wealth, it leads to concentration of political power. There's no way of getting around that unless, unless you're very careful. Unless the society is very careful. The government is very careful. Adam Smith knew that. Hobbes knew that. So why neglect that, for heaven's sakes? And that's how we devolved from a democracy to a plutocracy, in the absence of countervailing power. Power is the ability to control the action or thought of others, right? And since corporations uh, impose their ideas on us from the very beginning of our lives, they have a lot of power and they have a lot of money. And that includes political power, which then favors the privileged, obviously. 
and the needs of the poor are not adequately represented in the political process. We have to admit that the in the United States, especially the political process, has not been very kind to people at the bottom of the social hierarchy. So we shouldn't be so surprised that uh, the system doesn't work so well. We get a dysfunctional system. If you look at the minimum wage, for example, you look at it going down. Why? Because it's not indexed to inflation. And that is need would need political power to have it indexed to inflation. Okay, well, distribution, well, the top 1%, as I said, has about a third of total wealth. The bottom 50% has the sliver. One of our problems is, is obesity. It's not only uh, the revolt of the masses, it's not only COVID, but you know, we have a lot of problems that come out of this kind of a uh, political uh, economic system. And uh, we all know that obesity uh, increased uh, tremendously. The, uh, we also know that the U.S. is on top of the chart. These are old numbers, but they haven't changed much. The only thing I would like to emphasize is that the conventional wisdom is that the uh, obesity epidemic really, uh, really began uh, in a big way in the 1980s. African-Americans and have a higher rate of um, higher BMI values than whites in the United States. And of course, that uh, works into the, uh, their higher death rate uh, in the um, COVID pandemic. But uh, what I would like to uh, mention is a paper that I uh, published some time ago that showed that actually, if you look at the, the, the change in the BMI values, this is the rate of change by birth cohorts, they really begin to increase in the 1950s. Well, it's gender dependent and ethnic uh, ethnicity dependent, but I think it's very important to note this it's a little bit later with white girls, but not much. But you see the uptick here means that the onset of with television and with the more sedentary lifestyle, you have an upswing in the BMI values here. This is among uh, African-Americans. Uh, you see a similar similar uptick here in the 1950s. Black girls started very high to begin with, experienced the uptick a little bit later. So technology has an important um, element here. If you put those two graphs on top of one another, you see they're pretty well synchronized. They're a little bit a uh, little bit of lags here and there, but there is a lot of big upswing here in the late 50s and early 1960s. That to me is important uh, to note and more work could be, should be done along those lines. I call this the transition to post-industrial BMI values that um, 
Uh, my contention is that it started earlier than uh, presupposed. If you compare the U.S. BMI values for children to the Dutch, you see that there's a big, di a big divergence here. It starts pretty early and uh, quite uh, remarkable, especially if you put the U.S. reference in the middle here, which shows to me that even the US reference chart is misguided because the values were, were assumed valid at a time when the increase in BMI values were already underway. So that to me is quite, uh, quite noteworthy. And if you look at the difference between the, the U.S. and the Dutch uh, children in uh, pounds, let's say, well, they reached more than 20 pounds by the early teenage years. Okay, so it's, it's pretty, pretty remarkable. You can also look at adults uh, quickly. I also look at the rate of change in BMI values here also. And find uh, two in interesting uh, patterns. One is in the 1920s or the 19-teens, around the First World War era, there is an uptick here. And then again in the 1950s. So that my takeaway from this is that that transition to post-industrial BMI values happened in two, two-stage phenomenon. One stage, uh, the first stage occurred when clean water uh, became available to um, uh, the masses, when disease and mortality was um, eradicated in urban areas and so forth. And it's still, still healthy BMI values. We don't get into the unhealthy ones until the second stage. But notice this too is a 1950s phenomenon. Okay, so it correlates with what I found among children in uh, a different data set, uh, but it's a different part of the data set, but it's kind of uh, interesting. And I'm looking at this, by the way, by the uh, deciles, okay? And notice that the uh, bottom 10% really doesn't have a very big uptick here in the 1950s. And in fact, uh, not big, uh, not very big, even in the median range here, but look at what happens at the top 10%. The top 10% is really increasing in weight. So I found that quite, uh, quite amazing. And that actually is pretty much the female uh, pattern as well. Uh, now, African-Americans are a little bit different. Here's uh, uh, males. Uh, there's not much of an uptick here in the 1920s, but there is in the 1950s and 1960s, pretty big. Again, I'm looking at the rate of change. I'd like to remind you African-American females uh, also do not have a big uptick in the 1920s, but they do in the 1960s, and especially 
among uh, the top 10 percent, uh, the top uh, decile. These folks are changing at 0.4 BMI value per annum. That uh, means that a 64-inch tall person, a female, increased the weight during the weight during the 20th century in the 10th percentile by 12 pounds. Not much. Okay, not much. Okay, this is the course of the one century. In one century by 12 pounds, but the 90th percentile increased by 128 pounds. I'm not kidding. That was the size of a West Point cadet back in the middle of the 19th century, 128 pounds. So it's like carrying a West Point cadet on their backs. This is uh, for African-Americans, the difference in weight between the 10th and the 90th percentile. Okay, so you're looking at the range in 1900 was 58 pounds. In in 2000, it was 174 pounds, the range. Rather amazing. And I'll just show you that in the 19th century, on the basis of a military school, you have the BMI values by age here, and look at the big difference in the 1920s, okay? So the big jump, basically. There's not much change thereafter between the 1920s and the 1950s. Not surprising, you had the war, you had the... Uh, Great Depression and so on. And back in the 19th century, there was not a big, uh, big in- improvement, big increase, you know, between 1860s, for example, and, and the last uh, four decades of the um, 19th century and up to 1909, there's a very, very small increase. There is hardly any change. Okay, so this kind of reinforces what I, uh, argued. And then from the 1950s to the 1980s, there's a big jump again. So it's a two-stage process, and that's what I'm emphasizing here. In terms of pounds, it's uh, for an 18-year-old American, this is uh, the first stage is a 15-pound jump, and then you got a 13-pound jump, and you got a 28-pound jump for an 18-year-old and show you uh, chlorination, filtration, sewage disposal, all increase in the 19 teens. Uh, so water quality improves by a lot. Uh, death from typhoid fever in, in Cincinnati, you know, goes down amazingly in the 19 teens. And of course, all of this is to do with technology. In 1920s, you also have radios, you have automobile that makes for a more sedentary lifestyle. Then in the 1950s, you get television and then computers later on. So technology is a big, uh, a big aspect of this. Well, you also have less supervision of children, advertisement, I already mentioned, lack of consumer protection is big, 
because in mainstream economics, you don't need consumer protection since they're irrational. They know what they're doing. Who are you, John Kamlos, to tell them what, what they should eat? Okay, let the food industry uh, do its thing and, and so forth. So lack of consumer protection is very big. Eating outside of the home. Fast food, the per capita number of fast food restaurants just about doubled between 1972 and 1997. My point then is, uh, in conclusion, is that mainstream economics supports an obesogenic economy. That's one of the problems. And there are lots of uh, problems with our mind when we think about uh, rationality. Uh, we should think about the fact that we have lots of cognitive biases. We've, came, we've come through a period of evolution, right? And our brain evolved just like other parts of our bodies. And none of our, part, none of our parts is perfect. So why should our brain be perfect, as the economists assume? And we're subject to framing effects, uh, which include the, the same problem, receives different responses depending on how it is described. And of course, advertisers knew that, know that and take advantage of our inability to deal with uh, those kinds of things. And we also have preference reversals in which people refer, prefer some option X to Y when the choice is elicited one way, but prefer Y to X when the choice is elicited another way. This is just one of our inherent biases. And then we also have self-control problems. Uh, obviously, that's how immediate gratification became such a big uh, part of our culture. We didn't choose to be uh, immediate gratifiers. That was imposed on us by the corporate world. And then we have Pavlovian conditioning. And then accessibility is another issue that advertisers take advantage of. Some mental contents come to mind uh, quickly and effortlessly, like intuitive thoughts come to mind spontaneously. And Daniel Kahneman calls this system one thinking. These are fast, automatic, effortless, effortless associative, and difficult to control. Obviously, advertisers uh, take advantage of that. Then we have system two, which advertisers want to avoid, which is our prefrontal cortex, which is slow and deliberately controlled and so forth. So you can read more about these sorts of issues in journal called Economics and Human Biology and in the textbook that uh, I authored which I recommend to you. And I see that I'm able to keep within the 45-minute rule that Stanley imposed on me. So I will end here and see what you think of all this. Thank you for your attention.